Welcome to the Jersey Herd podcast brought to you by Jersey Finance. In this podcast, we will speak about the latest news, views and insights on Jersey's finance industry. Hi, my name is Alan Wood. I'm the Global Head of Business Development at Jersey Finance. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Fergus Drake, the CEO of Crown Agents, and his colleague Brian Richmond, the Regional Director for East and Southern Africa. Thank you both very much for joining this podcast today. Fergus, uh, we uh, had the pleasure of meeting each other in Jersey earlier this year when you travelled over to the island to understand what we're doing on the sustainable finance front and particularly in the impact space. Um, And since then, we've had a number of uh, discussions to talk about how Jersey might help with the future growth of Crown Agents through innovative development finance, linking private investment with Crown Agents' extensive development work around the globe. And I think it's fair to say that we're developing a deep understanding of how Jersey and Crown Agents can collaborate in the future. And we've, it's really interesting that we've got significant alignments on Africa and the impact space in general. So here we are in our first podcast, which is very exciting. Fergus, please, can I ask you to, first of all, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about Crown Agents and uh, the links that you've made with Jersey. Brilliant. Thank you, Alan, for having us on the podcast. It's great to be here. So as you mentioned, I'm CEO of Crown Agents and I've previously been Executive Director of global programmes at Save the Children UK, and I work for the office of Tony Blair as well in Rwanda. So um, for your listeners, Crown Agents is a not-for-profit international development organisation with over 187 years of history working alongside governments and multilateral organisations to provide expertise in procurement, last-mile supply chains, health system strengthening and responding to emergencies. We work in over 50 countries, reaching 120 million people a year. And and as you say, the values thing was an area that I think drew us uh, together. Our values are our courage and authenticity, courage to stand up to things like corrupt procurement practices and authenticity to stay long term on the ground. Um, and we stand alongside governments and focus very much on strengthening their systems. I was really impressed with Jersey's focus on being a force for good in the global ecosystem and your unique history with Africa um, and all the support that you can bring to bear across the island. So we first got together after introduction from Michelle McMahon of Invest Advisory. And when I came over in January, I was really impressed with the ecosystem of companies and foundations really interested in supporting growth and prosperity in Africa. We feel at Crown Agents that impact investing is the future as the private sector is increasingly focused on not only enhancing development outcomes linked to the sustainable development goals, but also using their unique skills to leverage greater resources. So in effect, a triple bottom line. So given Jersey's unique expertise, understanding and role, we're really thrilled to be working so closely with you. Great. Thanks, Fergus. Now, um, on the 11th of March this year, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 outbreak as a pandemic. Just walk us through what Crown Agents has done in response to this pandemic. Yeah, sure, Alan. So obviously responding to emergencies isn't new to us at all. We've been doing this for all over our history. But when it comes to epidemics, we played a critical role in the Ebola scale up in 2014. So we procured and delivered over 2000 metric tons of medical equipment into Sierra Leone and that was done in just six weeks and we helped establish the six Ebola treatment centres for critically ill patients there. 
So currently, as you can imagine, we're using our capabilities to support governments in responding to the COVID-19 outbreak across 45 countries. So we're procuring and transporting medical equipment to ensure that UK citizens across the globe receive the assistance that they require from the UK government to respond to the virus. And also, since the outbreak, we've been partnering with businesses and multilateral donors as well, such as the Caribbean Development Bank, where we're supporting 14 Caribbean countries to obtain urgent, urgently needed personal protective equipment. Um, there has also been lots of headlines highlighting imports of defective personal protective equipment around the globe. And we've got decades of experience of quality insurance and inspections. So we've been contracted across the globe to make sure that the kit being procured, be it across Europe or over in China as well, is obviously at the highest possible specification. Now, at the other end of our work, we currently work in 50 countries, project managing health, humanitarian governments and economic growth programmes. So we've rapidly had to pivot those programmes to respond to new in-country demands resulting from the virus, whilst we continue with the work that's obviously ongoing. So in South Sudan, we are adapting our UK aid-funded health pooled fund programme that delivers health services and medicines to over 10 million people across the country in over 800 clinics. We're now focusing on that, working very closely with DFID, other donors and the Ministry of Health to make sure we can expand our procurement and water and sanitation work so that we can, in effect, treat the virus at source. So that's just a live example of not only new engagement, but also being able to flex and change the current programmes that we're implementing around the world. Thanks, Fergus. Um, so what's been the biggest challenge you've encountered over this period? Wow, that's a great question. So um, I would say there's three and Brian will be able to talk more about this, but it's a very cutthroat market out there. So um, it's money up front and only if you've got a massive scale uh, of procurement will you be able to get to the top of the line or the head of the queue. Um, also, unlike other responses we've been involved in, this obviously hit the whole world pretty much at the same time. So unlike Ebola, where there was a massive global response to effectively three countries in Western Central Africa, then this is all countries being affected by it at the same time, which is obviously hugely challenging. And as a result, we've seen air charter prices rise from maybe 300,000 US a charter to, to 1.2 million. And then also, very specifically, this has affected the UK. And so we are a very externally focused organisation. But the UK has had its own challenges. And in some ways, Asia has had the template of the SARS response. Um, Africa has had Ebola. Whereas anything like this scale for Europe only goes back to the Spanish flu in 1918, which was obviously a very long time ago. So being able to uh, juggle both our external response uh, and the internal UK needs is is a real challenge, uh, which we're we're rising to, as you can imagine. But this is really such a unique challenge that the world is facing. Thanks, Fergus. Um, let's bring uh, Brian into the uh, conversation. Brian, there's no doubt that Africa is facing a massive challenge when it comes to COVID nineteen, um, with the continent set to potentially be uh, epicenter uh, and the next wave of the pandemic. Which countries have you been supporting and um, um, what are the challenges that you've been seeing? 
Thanks, Alan. Um, I've been working for CrowdAngel for a long time now, as you say, for this is year 41, believe it or not. And um, a lot of that time has been spent living and working in Africa. So I have a huge affinity um, for Africa. And when I go back to certain countries, my friends always say to me, welcome home, Brian. So um, it's really sad looking at the current situation because the continent faces an enormous challenge which could set back its development decades and it desperately needs support from the international community. And it's not just the immediate health impact that is a, is a worry, but the longer lasting damage to the economies across Africa. As Fergus said, a significant percentage of Crown Aden's programmes are based in Africa. So we're making it an absolute priority to support the partner governments who we've been working with for 185 years through these programmes to respond to local needs and prepare to fight the virus. Um, Africa, positive thing, Africa seems to have responded very quickly with lockdowns, but those won't be easy to maintain. As you can imagine, social distancing is not really the norm in Africa. And again, talking to my friends and colleagues in Africa, they all say one thing, that people have a, a pretty horrible choice of going outside and risk being infected or stay indoors and, and, and potentially starve. We're already working for about a dozen of our key African partner countries across West, East and Southern Africa. But just to give you one example of where we're helping, in Zimbabwe, we're using the strong existing relationships built up through our programmes to assist in the COVID response. We've been managing a UK government-funded results-based financing project since 2014, and the close relationship with the Ministry of Health gives us this opportunity to support on COVID. Um, under that programme, we're supporting 848 clinics and 67 hospitals countrywide. And these facilities, with our assistance, are now adhering to social distancing guidelines, erecting screening tents to test patients and build isolation units. And then under a separate project, we already pay salary top-ups to essential health workers across the country and we'll now be using that same contract um, to extend it to paying COVID-19 top-ups for the ICU frontline staff. So it's really crucial that Africa gets help now. I, I can't emphasize enough, without international assistance, Africa could really become a future epicenter for the virus. And we know that if the virus stays alive in one country, it stays alive in the world and we will all be affected. And, and just um, looking at the sort of health system and infrastructure across the continent, which is, I think we'll all agree, is, is fairly fragile. Um, and if we see a, a rapid rise in cases with the virus, you know, it could be widespread and significant. You know, what, what can actually be done to tackle these challenges? Well, there's a lot to do, Alan, but um, there was a really good paper recently by the Tony Blair Institute that set out um, what would really be the priorities and they work across 14 African countries. The first thing really was to get the COVID surveillance and contract tracing and testing strategies and systems in order, something we're, we're beginning to see now coming to the fore in a lot of countries. Um, they're going to need to map all the cases and their contacts to create a picture of the outbreak. Um, you know, does your system have the capacity to do that? And are you making best use of technologies available to suit your country? I mean, interestingly, some of the countries that were affected by Ebola uh, have already set up these systems so that they've got a great start, that they've got some track and trace systems in place. And then if you look at Kenya with their M-Pesa um, system, they've also got a good platform to start with. So that would be the first thing, the, 
the track and trace. And then secondly, prepare the health system as best you can. And as Fergus mentioned earlier, protect the frontline health workers. So is there sufficient uh, personal protective equipment for the health workers for the onslaught of the virus? Are there enough isolation and ICU beds? And have the health workers received specific COVID training? One lesson that came from the Ebola response is that the international community missed a chance to strengthen existing partner country health systems across the board. And that's really key because although there's a lot of international assistance money that goes into the health sector, much of it was on vertical programs like HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria. And this really needs to be across the board health system strengthening. And then, of course, there's a need to plan how to protect vulnerable groups and prioritise health care and maintain the non-COVID health care. We, we know how many millions of people die across the continent from malaria, for example. So health facilities need to prioritise some of that other critical care. And also how will some of the more vulnerable groups, such as the elderly and existing TB and malaria patients, be shielded from the virus? And then I think also really important, as I mentioned earlier, not just you know the health impact, but the economic impact, the need to plan economic stimuli and social protection measures to protect livelihood, livelihoods. I mean, even once these lockdowns are lifted, Afri African economies will continue to suffer the consequences of the virus caused by the wider global crisis, particularly many, um, a big part of their budget is reliant on commodity prices, and we're seeing those crashing already. So scaling up of existing social protection mechanisms, cash transfers, for example, food vouchers, and looking to support and sustain businesses, and access to finance will be a key part of that. And then potentially repurposing manufacturing to support the COVID response itself. And it's great to see that in Kenya, they're already setting up uh, local manufacturing capabilities for personal protective equipment. And then what's really important is engaging the citizens and communities on the ongoing approaches that will apply during the lockdown and after the lockdown and, and behaviour change strategies. What we found on Ebola was that community care workers in particular were very effective at rolling out behaviour change to rural communities. They were trusted. They were, they, they were part of the community and, and people listened to the community health workers. And then I think finally, look to how the government and the private sector and the international community can work more closely and partner. And as we respond to both the immediate needs and look to the long-term economic impact on countries, we'll be, we, Crown Agents, will be aiming to work with the private sector to bring their finance in and their technical capabilities and their support where it can play a catalytic role. And right now, we're already working with a number of companies and foundations who are using their resources combined with the capabilities of Crown Inks to make a difference. So, so quite a list, but as you can see, you know, a lot to do in a short period of time. Yeah, no, a significant amount of work. Um, and I think everybody agree that you're doing a, a great job. But one of the things that I was just interested, you know, you, you said you work for Crown Agents. Is it you're 41 years, is it now? Your 41th year? How does this particular challenge compare to other things that you've seen? Well, as Fergus said earlier, we've responded to many crises worldwide, but in all honesty, Alan, haven't seen anything as challenging as this. And 
Um, you know, we've had to learn really quickly and we've already got some scars on our back. I mean, as Fergus said, the first thing is, that, you know, normally in a crisis, the international community can come to the rescue. But right now, most of the planet needs the same commodities and skill set to fight this virus. And obviously, you know, naturally, that's resulted in countries looking inwards and focusing on their own response rather than reacting internationally. So as a consequence, we're operating in what I think is the most challenging supply chain environment I've ever seen. National interests have resulted in export bans on commodities in places like India and the US. So it's really difficult to source the items that are needed. And even where those have been lifted now, for example, in China, so the supply chain remains at best chaotic as there's so many buyers chasing the same stocks. So you end up dealing with lots of intermediaries in the supply chain, and that comes with a big risk. So what we've done at Crown Agents is intensified our already rigorous due diligence focus to minimise fiduciary risk for the buyers and ensure quality of product, which Fergus mentioned earlier was, was really important. I mean, we've already heard some really sad stories about incorrect or substandard items being supplied, including test kits, the personal protection equipment, and even ventilators, which is a real disaster. And I suppose the, the biggest challenge when I sit here and reflect on the last couple of months is that we've had to respond as a virtual team. I mean, we're really used to having our crisis response teams working together physically. I led the Ebola response back in 2014, and we had two floors of people sitting together and working really effectively. And so it's been really um, a new challenge and a big challenge to get used to working virtually. But I have to say, with the use of modern technology, it's worked really well. And we've created a 24-7 capability across our global resources. As an example, I'm speaking to you now from Dubai, but I'm leading and mobilizing our global COVID team. So those, I would say, are the, are the major challenges we've faced. Thanks, Brian. So, um, Fergus, let's um, just move on to the micro uh, economic sort of impact. Um, you know, I was reading something recently where McKinsey indicated that the jobs and income of 150 million Africans, that's one third of the entire labour force, are at risk. How do you view the micro impact versus the virus itself? I think that's another great question, Alan. I think the first answer is we, we don't know. So we need some humility in trying to answer that question. I do like the fact that some commentators have broken this down into firstly a health emergency, then a humanitarian emergency, and then an economic emergency. And I think we're all agreed that the economic impact could well be far more negatively impactful than the health one. So it's really hard to work this out, but Africa does have the same unknowns as the rest of the world. So including the impact of social distancing measures over the short and long term but it's got a young population uh, lower levels of obesity and a different set of challenges so we don't know how COVID-19 will interface with those with HIV or malaria for instance but it also feels that Africa is at least three to six months behind the peak that we're seeing in Europe currently so to cut through all that I think we definitely anticipate two risks the first is overcrowding overcrowding, sorry, malnutrition rates and a lack of health spending has meant that COVID-19 could penetrate faster and deeper than other countries. Um, many countries don't have the same equipment to deal with the pandemic. 
So in the UK, there are 28 doctors per 10,000 people. In Nigeria, this is four doctors per 10,000 people. And in Congo, it's 0.9 doctors per 10,000 people. Four out of 10 Nigerians also don't have access to basic hand washing facilities at home. And Nigerian DRC, for instance, about 4% of their GDP is spent on health, whilst in Italy and the UK, this figure is 9%. But as I say, the financial impact and subsequent ramifications, I think, will be far greater than those who actually lose their lives to COVID-19. So it is good to get a sense of that perspective that already approximately 900,000 people die a year in Africa from pneumonia, 700,000 from HIV AIDS, 400,000 from diarrhea and 400,000 a year from malaria. Now, secondly, it is the economic impact and whether we do enter some form of Great Depression as a result of this. There are no safety net structures, no furlough payments in the same way that we've seen happen across Europe. Um, and also lockdowns won't be possible in the same way because Simply put, if you stay at home, you might well starve. And we've seen epic warnings from the World Food Programme saying that there's currently 135 million people at risk for food security, insecurity across Africa, and that could rise to 260 million. And also there have been some studies talking about whether there will be an additional 70 million a year in extreme poverty in Africa as a result of COVID. And that's as a result of forex shocks, oil price down, uh, impact on people not being able to remit into Africa at the same level and credit flight out of the country. So in short, hugely challenging. And this is going to be uh, a really interesting next year to see how this plays out on the ground. Absolutely agree with all of that. Um, interestingly enough, I've spent a, a lot of time in South Africa, Kenya and Nigeria, <clears throat> you know, some of the, uh, the, the, well, the three largest uh, economies in Africa. But when you talked about Nigeria, um, I, I, I worry about the size of their population, which is nearing 200 million people. You know, 80% of them are near the, the poverty line or below the poverty line. Um, can you really see them escaping you know, the, the number of deaths, say, in comparison to the US? Well, again, Alan, um, the simple answer is we don't know. Um, if we're being glass half full, then Nigeria was able to stop a small outbreak of Ebola that landed there in 2014. So that's positive that they have got um, health systems that can respond quickly. And obviously, because of this hitting in China and then Europe, they have got a three or four month head start on being able to root this out. But as per my previous answer to the previous question, it's far more the long term economic impact that I'm fearful of across Africa, but in countries like Nigeria, particularly uh, when the oil price is so low as it is currently, because that economy is very dependent on the oil income. Uh, that they have. Thanks, Fergus. So um, I think our listeners will be quite interested to understand how the private sector can partner with Crown Agents in response to COVID-19. Brilliant. Yeah, I think there are there are two areas. Firstly, we can act as um, an implementing partner for corporates or foundations wanting to take care of a COVID response need for their own company or area of the world that they are serving. And secondly, it is crucial that we respond both to the significant immediate needs of COVID-19, 
but also that we prioritise developing longer-term resilience and self-sufficiencies of countries' own health services, governance and leaders to respond so that we're not just in this sticking plaster mode. So as a not-for-profit company, we've launched a fund to ask philanthropists and foundations to provide generous funding needed to enable us to do more to support those governments respond to both the immediate but the long-term impacts. Um, and they can be assured that by working with us, we have the highest standards of financial management, due diligence, transparency, and the existing systems that we've built up over the last 187 years to maximise that support. So we're using the fund in three ways. Firstly, to support frontline health workers through the sourcing, inspecting, procuring and transport of essential equipment and supplies such as testing kits and lab consumables, personal protective equipment and so forth. Secondly, we're working directly with governments to assist them with their health response plans. So building on activities that we're already engaging, everything from uh, health messaging around behaviour change activities, and then also supporting disease surveillance and data collection. And thirdly, we're giving technical assistance on the health and economic recovery plan. So looking at value for money audits, system reforms that can really help government stand on their own two feet. So those are the areas that we're really focused on that we can give short term funding and technical expertise to help specifically countries ride out not only the next six months but also their next two years of planning. Fergus and Brian thank you very much for joining us today Uh, that was very informative and I'm sure that many of our listeners found it extremely helpful. Um, That was my final question and concludes uh, the Crown Agent podcast. If any of our listeners are interested in more detail um, please visit our website where you can find out how we're partnering with Crown Agents and other local communities. As a reminder, you can also find out information on Jersey Finance on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jersey Heard. Don't forget to subscribe via your chosen podcast platform and follow us on our social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.